Hope you're doing well today. I want to start with just a quick personal note, if you don't mind. Um, uh, and that is to say thank you so much for your hospitality to uh, me over the last uh, week and a half. And the most common question I've gotten over the last week and a half is, where is your family? <laughs> okay. And um, let me tell you, when they're here, you won't ask that because you'll hear them. Okay. Uh, that, that's much more normal. Um, we are, as we move from Tennessee here into the Little Rock area, uh, we're kind of coming by stages as we wrap up some things that the kids already had committed to and had planned on. And so uh, the long and short of all that is that Deacon and Lucy are going to land on Friday. If you feel a slight tremor in the earth here, don't, don't worry about it. That's just us landing here. Um, and then the, the rest of them will be about a week later. We'll all kind of bit by bit get here. Um, they are, uh, all of us, I should say, have been kind of riding that roller coaster of emotions that moving entails. How many of you guys ever made a move across state lines before? And uh, depending on how old you were at the time, it's a different experience. Um, we have an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, two 15-year-olds, and then uh, my wife and I, who are in our mid-40s, okay? And uh, we are all kind of have things that we are grieving and that we that, that make us sad. And then we have things that we're really excited about. And uh, you guys are a part of so many of the things that we're really excited about. Uh, and I appreciate all the support that you've given us. But they'll, all that to say, they're coming soon. Appreciate your prayers as we kind of make this transition. Uh, as we begin today, I'd like to begin with a reading of uh, this text that we're going to have this morning, which is the first 12 verses of the uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's how it starts. Now, last week, we kind of had an introduction to it uh, with the text that ends the Sermon on the Mount, uh, with the story of the, the wise and the foolish builders. But today, we're going to start with the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount proper. This is one of the most uh, pivotal teachings of Jesus. If you would stand with me, let's give our attention to the Word of God. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs, oh, I'm sorry. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for justice sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven 
Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let the church say amen. Have a seat. These are the what we call the Beatitudes of Jesus. They are the one of the starkest pictures of the upside down kingdom that is the kingdom of God. They are radical in every sense of the word. They cut at the very root of the tree and they want us to reconsider all kinds of stuff this morning. These are some of the most familiar teachings of Jesus. There's some of the words that probably many of you, as I was saying the first part of each of these phrases, I bet you were already ahead of me in the second half. Some of you guys feel that way? Well, we're going to work on this. We're going to be a talk back church, okay? Some of y'all do that this morning. I was filling in one. You filled in the other part? Okay, all right. Even if you didn't and you said yes, I appreciate it. Okay, we're all learning habits. Listen, this has a... um, has a danger for us. Of course, we want to have the word of God written on our hearts so that we do that, so that when we hear part of it, we can finish Jesus's own sentences. We want to know it that well, but there's no phrase, right? Sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, we forget the things that are familiar. We lose track of what they are really saying. And we have a way of like tending to lean towards novel stuff, looking for the new. Well, sometimes it's the old truth that you need to hear first. And in these old truths of Jesus, let them not be too familiar for us because they have a radical message for us. We call them the Beatitudes. That's because of the Latin translation of that word blessed, okay? Uh, But that word blessed or blessed, okay? I know that you were all like, why is he saying it blessed? It's supposed to be blessed are, right? And that's the only way you ever pronounce that word. That's the only time you ever pronounce that word that way. You don't ever, you don't ever see, you know, if you read those like live, live, laugh, love, you know, signs, and then there's like somebody has a hundred, how many of y'all have a blessed sign in your house? Come on, tell the truth. Okay. And you never look at that sign and go blessed, right? You know, it says blessed. Nobody says I'm too blessed to be stressed, right? (laughs) Nobody says it that way, right? And it's our familiarity with that word is actually a roadblock for us in, these, in this text, okay? Because we have to wrestle with what blessed means before we can get anywhere with these words. And it's kind of trouble. I want to tell you that there's actually two different concepts of blessedness in the Bible, okay? And this is true whether we're talking about the New Testament, which is written in Greek, or we're talking about the Old Testament, which is mostly written in Hebrew with a little bit of, uh, a little bit of Aramaic thrown in. And the words that we find in those two places, there's two different concepts. And we have to kind of figure out which one we're really working on here. And it might surprise you to hear the answer. One of those are the kinds of things like when the old patriarchs would put their son or their daughters on their knee and they would pronounce a blessing over them, right? Or when 
uh, God is going to say over the, you know, the, is going to bless the world, okay? Or he blesses Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12. That's one form of the word blessing, okay? We, I'm going to bless somebody. Or we think about somebody in a context being blessed by God. In other words, God is showing his favor on that person. He's giving them some kind of gift uh, because of uh, because of some some covenant that he's made with them. That's a form of blessing, okay? In Greek, uh, that word is the word that's a root. You, you've heard it all your lives. You just never, you never, you never think of it this way. It's the root of the word, uh, the English word, eulogy, okay? So when you go to a funeral and somebody says nice things about the person that's died, what they're doing is they're pronouncing good words. You logo, logos, okay? You logomeno. They're pr pronouncing a good word, a blessing over that person's life. They're trying to say some, a blessing word. And that's the word that we find. In, it shows up in other places in the New Testament where that kind of like a eulogy blessing is pronounced. And it's like, may God be favorable to you. At the end of worship, um, I, I don't remember if it was, I think it was Elsa that said, why does Mr. Stephen pray with his hands like this? And I, I don't always, or was that you, Eva? I don't remember which one it was. It could have been either one. So we have a way of pronouncing blessings for each other. It's a good practice for the church. I really believe in that for all of us. Hope we all bless each other and bless our kids. But you know what? That's not the kind of word that we're dealing with in these Beatitudes. We're dealing with a different word that has a different root. We're dealing with this one starts off with a Greek word. And I, by the way, I don't want to nerd out on Greek stuff with you all the time. I try to avoid doing that, but every once in a while we need to. This is a word, makarios, which is the root of our word, the macarena, okay? Um, uh, it means something different than to pronounce a blessing necessarily. It means something like, happy are those who are, or Maybe uh, there's a, a scholar named Jonathan Pennington who's suggested saying, flourishing are those who, I've kind of been trying out something. Macy Bell told me it was okay. Uh, she thought this was a good translation. Um, I, said, I say that the, the way to translate blessed be or bless, blessed be, it's so hard not to do that. I think it should be something like this. Living that good life are those who. All right. Now that's a little wordy, but you hear what it's saying, don't you? Doesn't that say something different? You say, blessed be, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's almost hard not to throw it in that old, like archaic ritual intonation. Blessed be the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? Sounds ritualistic. So I like it this way. Living that good life are those who are in poor in spirit. Now it sounds a little more backwards that way, doesn't it? See, you're used to hearing the religious side of it are, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like it sounds like a religious thing to say. But when I say, living that good life are the poor in spirit, doesn't that sound kind of backwards? And it should. Because what Jesus is saying here is meant to sound kind of backwards. You're not meant to hear these and say, well, of course. 
You're meant to hear them and say, how can that be? How can it be that the poor in spirit are living that good life? How can it be that those who are in mourning are living that good life? How can it be that those who are meek, oh, those, those who are in peacemakers, how can it be that those who, are, those who are persecuted, how can it be that they are living that good life, right? We're going to have to do a translation like that someday. Something that helps us see the stark counterintuitive way that Jesus talks about the world that reads to us as upside down as it surely sounded to the people that first heard Jesus saying it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does this mean? Because it seems to flip everything on its head. Jesus essentially gives eight pictures here. Um, there are eight pictures in these Beatitudes. Now, there's really, there are nine times that it says, uh, blessed are, okay, make sure I'm on here. There are nine times that it actually says that, uh, but there are eight. the last one is blessed are, the, blessed are those who are persecuted. And then Jesus takes that eighth one and he looks at his disciples and he says specifically to them, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Okay, so there's really eight of these. There are eight of these concepts that Jesus has to say, and they are absolutely countercultural. They are supposed to be surprising to the people that hear them. In these eight pictures, poor in spirit, mourning, meek, or who are humble, who are not asserting themselves in some way, those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, and that's the same word. Blessed are those who are merciful, the merciful and the pure in heart. Okay, those who are not allowing themselves to kind of be corrupted by all the stuff that happens outside of us, right? Those who are trying to make peace, who are dedicated to peacemaking, and those who are persecuted. These eight pictures would never be considered anything like a blessing. Nobody in Jesus's day thought these people were living that good life. So what is it that Jesus is doing here? What is it that Jesus is doing with these words, with these sets? So one of the things I had to move last week, my wife made me take it instead of putting it on a moving truck because she didn't trust them to get it here without breaking it. Jesus' words are often like a mirror. He holds up his words. The word of God is held before us, and Jesus wants to say to us, look, see yourself. Find yourself. Consider yourself and it's not just that Jesus wants to draw the picture of these groups I think Jesus is doing that but in as much as he's doing that I think Jesus is also at the same time drawing the picture in the imagination of their opposites 
of the things which are the other side of these eight pictures. They all have a negative. They all have a, a shadow side, an inverse, something that they describe by what they take away. Consider. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What about those who consider themselves to be absolutely loaded? What about those who have forgotten what it means to sometimes be in need? Those who have forgotten what it needs means to experience scarcity. What about those who feel themselves to be self-sufficient? To have everything put together in its right place. Now, those people, those people, the rest of the world says that that person that's driving in the fancy car and pulls into a nice garage and gets to take that sweet vacation in the summer that never worries about whether the bill gets paid or whether there's money in the bank, the rest of the world thinks they are living that good life. There's a lot of places in the world that consider that those people are the ones that have it all together. And Jesus says, look, are you really as self-sufficient as you think you are? Do you really not need anything from anyone else? Those who are meek, you say? Those who are meek are those who do not assert their own power. They never use their own might over somebody else for the purpose of manhandling them. Jesus says they are blessed. But what about the other side? What about those who are not meek? The arrogant. Those who wield their power like a club to get what they want at every turn. Those who walk into a room and they're going to project the power that they need to get exactly what they want, to bend everybody in that room to their will. The world is way too easily impressed by such a one. The world sometimes look at them and says, man, that person knows how to get exactly what they want. They're living that good life. And Jesus says, really? Is it really true? Is it really true that you are all powerful? Is it really true that you deserve all the pride and all the prestige that your arrogance underwrites? See, in these eight pictures, Jesus, I think, doesn't just have in in mind those who are on the exact thing that he's describing. I think he's also talking about the things that these people reject or perhaps that they've just never been given. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who hunger and thirst for justice, Jesus says. In my mind, whoever wants to be in that position, right? I mean, truth be told, it's the position that a lot of us are in. Position where it feels like we are constantly in the situation of having somebody else's boot on our neck. And it feels like there will never, never, never be justice. And we cry out with the prophets of old, how long, oh Lord? Anybody ever feel like that? Hey, listen, we warmed up with the silly things so that we can say it when it comes to the serious things. Anybody ever feel like that? I know. I know that we do. Jesus says, those people are blessed. It makes me think about the people that never have to worry about that. What about the people who don't hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice? What about the people that never pay it a thought because they never feel oppressed? What about the people that never feel like they're on the outside? What about those people that never feel like they're sitting underneath somebody else? You know, those people who don't hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice because, frankly, they've never felt like they needed it. They've never felt the weight of injustice in their world. Now, some people would say if you've been completely free of any kind of injustice or just uh, injustice in the world, man, you are living that good life. Jesus says might be wise to you to develop a little hunger for you to get a little thirsty and to reconsider the world in which you live. These eight pictures, part of what Jesus is doing here is that Jesus is Jesus dispels our illusions of what makes up the good life. He challenges it challenges it he throws a brick in it and says your illusions will not stand before the word of God they won't stand before truth These texts, uh, Matthew does it a little bit differently. You, you may know, you may be familiar that there's another set of Beatitudes or things like this in Luke's version. Luke in Luke chapter 6 writes uh, uh, the Sermon on the Plain, okay, as we call it. It's kind of, it's kind of his version of the Sermon on the Mount. And in there, uh, Jesus' words, Jesus has things that, that start off, blessed are the poor is the first one, okay? And then he has some other blessings as well. But then Luke follows those things up. He follows them up immediately with woes that are pronounced. So like he says, blessed are the poor. And then a couple of verses later, he says, woe to the rich. Now, if you want to get your toes stepped on, go ahead and take a little time in Luke chapter 6. Do it later, not right now. I'm still preaching, okay? But spend a little time in Luke chapter 6. See, it does exactly the sort of thing that I'm talking about today from Matthew. He, Jesus, there, Jesus doesn't just imply the other side. He goes out and says it out loud. Now, Matthew doesn't have at least that list of woes. At least it doesn't show up here. Now, I want to give you a little bit of homework, though. 
Because Matthew does have a list of woes. They're just not placed here in chapter 5. His list of woes is reserved all the way near the very end of his teaching. It's in Matthew chapter 23, where he speaks to the scribes and the hypocrites and the Pharisees. And what he has to say to them, it's not blessed, but woe unto you, you scribes and hypocrites. You go, you travel a thousand miles to make a single convert, and then you teach him the ways of hell. You, you spend all your time measuring out your spice rack and making sure you're giving a tenth, a tithe of it, but you've forgotten the weightier matters of the law. Jesus, in that space, if you read them, and this is the real bit of homework that I want to give you, is spend a little time in Matthew chapter 23, later uh, sometime over the course of this week, and you'll hear echoes of these blessings, but they sound different, right? Like, so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then he says to the, the Pharisees later, he says, woe to you because you've forgotten the weightier matters of the law like righteousness and justice. Right? So there's these parallel pieces where he's said, these things are blessed. People that do these things are blessed. And in the end, he says, and if you've forgotten them, you know, you're not living that good life. And the surprising twist of, of, in that text is that he's not saying that to the people who are the outsiders. He's saying to some of the most religious, supposedly blessed people in his community. He looks right at him and says, you are not, in fact, living that good life. Instead, you are on the road to destruction. So what do we do with a text like this? What do we do when we are able to come to the mirror and finally see ourselves and see Jesus dispelling our illusion? Well, with this particular text, I would say two things. The first one is that we need to learn to cultivate the postures that the text offers us. Now, like we said last week, uh, we want to do those things. We want to listen to the words of this sermon and listen to the words of Jesus, not just for our own sake, not just so that they will teach us to live the good life, but we want to do it also as a witness to other people. The world needs people who are light and salt, right? Who will demonstrate for the people around them what it means to be poor in spirit and meek, what it means to mourn, what it means to be peacemakers. Thought about this in the, con in the context this week of we had two events this week for our kids. Okay, so we had kids camp going on during the day here, and I know some of, I think some of them are here uh, with us this morning. We're going to say something about that here in just a little bit. Kids camp, okay, we, we, last night we also had uh, the area-wide VBS, which was really fun out at Burns Park. That's going to be going on again today, and so if you, if, you, if you haven't got a chance to go, still, go today. Be a part of that out at Burns Park uh, tonight. What time does it start? Five o'clock, is that right, Tammy? Five, okay, yeah, okay. 
So sometime, yeah, just you know, get there at 10 after 5, whatever, okay. Um, I was thinking about our kids. Everything that we do as a society teaches the illusions, doesn't it? It teaches the kids how to be self-sufficient and how to be proud and how to be how to be how to avoid pain. Our kids for, for our parents in the room today. Our kids need to grow up around people who know what it means to demonstrate meekness. Our kids need to grow up in families and in communities that know what it means to say not are blessed are those who know how to fight their way out of a crowd, but blessed are those who know how to and care to make peace. One of the hardest things for me as a parent, confessionally, is trying to remember that I don't have to win every argument. I don't. I don't have to make my kids agree every time we disagree. Now there's boundaries. But I need to demonstrate to them that I seek peace, not total victory. I want to cultivate these postures for my own sake so that I can live the good life that Jesus offers, but also for the sake of my kids and also for the sake of my neighbors, also for the people who go to work with me across the street. And yes, even church office cultures need to treat each other well, right? We're not just co-workers, but we are. I want to do it for the sake of the people that I interact with when I go out to eat and when I go to soccer games. I want to learn how to cultivate these postures so that the rest of the world can witness what the good life, the real good life. I want people to see what it looks like and know the different way. The second thing that I think and I think this is the real fundamental one here is I want to do things that cultivate those postures. I want to look for opportunities. And I'm, I'm telling you right now that there will be an opportunity this week. And it's going to be so annoying, by the way. OK, there's going to be an opportunity this week for you when you're going to have something going down in your life and you're going to hear the spirit echoing in the back of your mind. Oh, is that me? Is that peacemaking? Is that pure in heart? But pay attention to it. It's an opportunity to cultivate the postures. But more fundamentally than that, the other thing that I think we really have to do, and this is such a challenge, is we have to be committed to letting Jesus redefine the good life for us. There we can't help because of the, the water in which we swim. We can't help have all these assumptions about what the good life really looks like. But our fundamental commitment as people who follow Jesus together 
is not that we'll just follow some set of rules, not that we'll perform some set of rituals occasionally to make sure that God's not angry with us anymore. Our fundamental commitment is that when we see Jesus going up on the mountainside and sitting down, we'll do what his disciples did in the first verse. We'll come to him and we'll sit down and we'll listen. And we'll listen to what the teacher has to say. We'll sit at his feet and we will be ready with our ears open and our hearts open and we'll be ready to learn. To let Jesus mess with the things that we just thought were the way things are. Let him mess with our assumptions. Let him question all our sacred cows. We'll let him be the one that redefines the good life. And here's what we know. Because of how much he loves us, we know that in the end, he's telling us the truth. Jesus is showing us the way to that real, real good life. Let's pray together. Oh God, dare we ask you to provoke us this week with a challenge as stark as the one given by these Beatitudes. Yes, we do. We dare ask it. Would you teach us this week how to be people who live blessed and happy and flourishing by your way? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.